We are examining the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians with our study leader, Dave Wordson, in a message he has titled, The King's Now Heir. We have learned that each of us must receive life as a gift and stop being so uptight about it. Now let's join Dave as he shares the secret of contentment. A beautiful person, an at-ease person, is a person like Paul who takes life as a gift. If they're eating in a fancy restaurant, having a marvelous prime rib, they don't sit there and go, oh no, we can't eat this prime rib, the people are starving in the world. So they throw it in the garbage can. That doesn't help anybody. Doesn't help the people that are starving, it doesn't help the people you're with. The Apostle Paul, when he's with Lydia, would say, oh man, this is great to be with you, Lydia, and praise God for the good meals we're having. The next night he's in jail with Silas. Feed in stocks, no food at all. What's he doing then? He's not grumbling. He says, Lord, here we are. And they sing. Because Paul was an unbelievable man that received life as a gift. Whatever came, Lord, I'll take it. It's ultimately going to work together for good. And that's the humble man. The man who's at ease inside. I want you to pray for me. I promise you I'm not there yet. And I know that a lot of you aren't there yet either. But that's the journey where I want to go. The Apostle Paul says in verse 8, already you have all you want. How many of you feel you have all you want yet? He goes on, already you have become rich. How many of you are as rich as you want to be? You've got everything you'd want. Already you become kings. You want to be a king? That's where the Corinthians, Paul is being very sarcastic. But he's saying the Corinthians, man, you think you've already got everything. It's the insidious era of the American culture today. I think it's probably the saddest thing that's happening. You know, philosophers told medical science that if they could only prolong human life, a hundred years ago, philosophers were saying that if, if MDs could only prolong human life another 50 years, you see, a hundred years ago, your chance of living to be 80 was not too good. A hundred years ago, in every one of your families, we have four kids, probably two of them would have died in childbirth. And it would have happened right in our home, and we would have had to go outside and bury those loved ones. Older people would be about 45. Their teeth would be falling out because dental science wasn't too hot. You know, if you got an infection, you get the pliers, yank, it comes out. Okay? The people that rolled into Texas on the covered wagons didn't go to Baylor Hospital when the plumbing on their heart didn't work too good. They died. In fact, I look at some of you older ones, you lost your parents when they were just in their early 50s. A lot of you did. Over the same kinds of things where medical science today has given you 30, 35, maybe more years of life. Nothing wrong with that. But I want you to be aware of something. The philosophers were saying, secular philosophers were saying, give human beings another 50 years of life and they'll worship. They'll worship that doctor and they'll worship this life. You know, one of the insidious errors that so many American believers believe is you've got it all right now. And I want to warn you something. You know, the little children in this audience, when I talk to them about heaven, when I talk to them about going home to be with Jesus, when I talk to them about death being a journey 
that Jesus will take them safely through. You know, the little children in this audience, contrary to what a lot of you older adults think, the little children don't have a lot of trouble with that. It's not too hard for them to believe it. In fact, the little children at a, at a funeral will be the ones that ask you, why are you crying? They're home with the Lord. You've all, lots of you that have gone through the experience would understand that. But you know what starts to happen? As you get older, at a time when you should let go of this life and not hold on to it so tight, and therefore to be able to relax about it a little bit, you squeeze it tighter. You hang on tighter. You try to make this more of a kingdom. And sometimes you can have tons of money, but you won't share it with anybody because, man, like, what's going to happen to my security? I don't have the strength I used to have. And you're like this. And it has nothing to do with how much money you have or how little you have. You're just squeezing life. That's the way the Corinthians were. You know why? Because the Corinthians says this is all we've got. Well, I want to just really tell the truth to you. If you're going to retire in Florida, it's not worth it. I lived in Florida in a high school for four years. If that's your dream, which isn't too much of a dream for Texans, but where I was raised, Florida was heaven, back in the East Coast. You slugged it out for 50 winters and shoveled snow for 50 winters, and then you retired and went to St. Petersburg. And then you died. Great heaven. Man alive, you go to St. Petersburg, Florida, and man, you see a whole ton of people. They've got their seat in the park bench, and their other foot is on a banana peel sliding right into the grave. It's sick. They're enjoying heaven. Man, they can't enjoy good food anymore. They don't like to swim in the ocean anymore because they, they're afraid they're going to drown. I mean, who wants to go to Florida when you're on the last legs? And you all say, oh, no, no, I'm going to hang on to it. None of us can hang on to it. None of us. We prayed for our church family, the leadership last night, prayed for some of our church family that have older parents that they're now trying to work with because they have to get care for them. And we pray they'll find very godly care. Very strong parents. Parents that took care of them for years, but now age and time takes its toll. Now, I don't want to discourage any of you today, but I want to tell you reality because it'll give you an unbelievable hope. You know, there's a beautiful old person. It's the old person that's going home. That feels as the body begins to wear down, they say, man alive, this body's wearing out. That means God's getting ready for me to trade in for a new body. And boy, I'm ready. That new body's going to be eternal, never subject to disease. It's going to be marvelous. It's going to be a marvelous example of the perfect creative ability of the Lord. And so as their body, this physical body, begins to deteriorate, they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger inside in their spirit. Because they realize even if their mind deteriorates, one day the Lord will put it back together again and they'll have a new mind and they'll go on and live forever and ever. Now that might just sound like a, an empty-headed religious thought. I'm telling you it is life. And it's the kind of a hope and a confidence that the Apostle Paul had that enabled him not to make this life the kingdom and not get trapped into this life. Paul's very concerned about the Corinthians because they're seeking to have heaven in this life. He contrasts their lifestyle with his own lifestyle in verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles, who are the foundation of the church, on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. 
We've been made a spectacle, like a theater to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. The apostles were considered to be fools by the pagan society. But the Corinthians were so wise in Christ. Paul the apostle was considered weak, weak by the standards of the world. But the Corinthians were considered strong. You are honored, but the apostles were dishonored. To this very hour, we as apostles go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work very hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. You know what the Corinthian problem was? The Corinthian catastrophe was they wanted heaven right now, and they did not want to identify with the apostles who were really doing battle with a world system. And I want to tell the truth in this way. Every one of us that do battle with the world system, not talking about doing battle with the world. The physical world we live in is a good thing. But the system of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, if you stand against that system, you're going to get persecuted. Kids at school, if you really are unashamed of the gospel of Christ, Kids at school, if you're not afraid to acknowledge like before a meal, Jesus gave me this food. Jesus is the one who is the creator who caused the grain to grow so that the bread could be baked. Ultimately, Jesus, my Lord and Savior, gave me this food. If you as a believing student bow your head in a cafeteria and pray, you'll get mocked out for it. I guarantee you will. You older ones that are at work, some of you guys at work construction, when you finish your work and it's lunch break and you all take your, you know, your pails and you go out and sit under a tree when it's in the springtime and everyone's gathered around and you take out your pail and not, you know, like a big reverend putting your hand up in the air, getting down your knees, oh, Father, forgive these pagans for not thanking the Lord. No, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Most of them don't know the Lord. Why should they thank him? They don't believe in him. But if you just as a sincere, genuine believer, not judgmentally, but because it's true and because you love him, you just bow your head, I guarantee you, they'll call you preacher and everything else. So I guarantee every one of you, I guarantee you, if you're in a board meeting and the discussion starts to turn towards doing something that's a little bit underhanded, it's pretty close to the truth, but it's not the truth. And you stand up and say, hey, it's not ethical. It's wrong. I guarantee you, you might get asked. And that's why the American church is so comfortable. Because we all sit here Sunday morning and we're all good little Christian people. We all sing, Jesus, Jesus, name above all names. We love you. It's easy to do it here. It's hard to do it out there. And that's why the church has been suffering. You know, the world doesn't care what we do here. Satan really doesn't care that much what we do here. In fact, he's perfectly pleased 
to lock Christianity up in a nice Sunday morning culture. What he doesn't want is for any of you to take it out there. He doesn't want any of you to go out as a light into the world and say, hey, I'm very skillful in the way that I do my job. I'm a very good citizen. I'm known for honesty, and Jesus Christ has really given me a good life. I work very diligently with my hands. It's not that I'm lazy. It's not that I'm incompetent. But I happen to be one of these people that really believe Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And I'm not ashamed of it. The world will hate that. The world will absolutely detest it. In fact, they'll change it. Chuck Colton, in his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, talks about the fact that every time he has an interview, every time he's asked what happened in his life, he always says, he always says, the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for me and rose again, and I came to the place in my life where I believed in that Savior. He always says it. He never says he had a religious experience. He never said that he had some kind of a conversion. He always says very clearly, I received the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. But he says every time in the secular press it comes out, I had a conversion, I had a religious experience, something happened. Why? There's conflict over that. Have you ever watched an athlete? Every once in a while you have a real strong believing athlete. And in a newscast, after the game, they'll say, well, what do you think? And the athlete, very humbly sometimes, will say, I praise my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, turn the next, well, coach, what do you think about the game? Why? Because there's conflict. Young people, I know that it's hard to stand against that. That's why most of you don't pray at school. Because at your age, the number one thing is to be in with the crowd and not to make any ripples. Don't make any kinds of differences because you want to be accepted. I want you to know as a pastor teacher, I respect that. I understand that. But I challenge you, and I challenge every one of the moms and dads, because moms and dads, you can say, when I was in high school, I couldn't go against the crowd. But now that I'm an adult, I don't have any trouble going against the crowd, and you'll know you're not telling the truth. And we're in a tremendous conflict, a tremendous spiritual conflict. And what's wrong with a lot of us as American believers is it gets too hot for us. And the truth of the matter is we're just plain scared. I'm scared and you're scared. And we need to cry out for the Lord to work in our hearts about that. Just be honest about being afraid. You know, Solzhenitsyn in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, says something that's penetrating. You know what he says? He says, the only man in the Soviet Union that's really free is the man who is in jail and is not afraid to die. Do you know what he's saying? Can you understand what he's saying? Everything is by fear. Everything is done by fear. Fear was the dominant emotion on the street. Fear. You did what you were supposed to do because the Russian tanks were right there. You know what Solzhenitsyn was saying? That if you're not afraid to die, if you really believe in Christ with all your heart and you know he'll take you home, then the prison guard who comes in to beat the living daylights out of you, to snuff the physical life out of you, to seep your spirit away from you, if you're not afraid, then you're the one that's free and he's the one that's in bondage.
And that's what godly believers have known down through the centuries. When believers died in the arena, they were the free ones. It was the crowds who rejoiced in brutality, who were enslaved by all that lust, who had to live just for now and all the sensation it could bring. Those were the people that were in bondage. The person that wasn't afraid because they knew about eternal life was the person that was free. If we're ever going to make an impact, we're not talking about suffering for suffering's sake. I want to make that really clear. The Apostle Paul does not talk about being a martyr, a martyr spirit. There's none of that in Paul. Paul loved his human life. He used his human life. He could enjoy things, but he didn't hang on to it. And when obedience to Christ and honoring Christ meant suffering, he chose to honor Christ because he knew that Christ was the only one that was worth living for. I think some of the things that we need to really think about is do we believe in Christ like that? And I want to help you to do that. I don't want you to feel guilty. Some of you don't want to suffer for Christ because you've never really been taught how good Christ is. What I would want you to realize that being in jail with Christ, I guarantee you is much better than being on the street free without Christ. Suffering in a hospital with Christ in your heart is much better than being out with perfect health without Christ. And if you really know Christ, it's true. Because he's the deepest, most loving, most kind person that you can ever meet. The Apostle Paul closes by talking to us about an apostolic lifestyle. And this is one of the toughest areas of Christianity. How did the apostles respond to suffering? First of all, they worked very hard with their hands, verse 12. We should be known throughout the area, if you hire a believer, they will discipline themselves. They'll be there on time. They'll work. They'll be diligent. They will be a very effective worker. We should be known for that. The Apostle Paul says when we respond to suffering, we work diligently with our hands. So diligent hands. Second of all, when we curse, we bless. That's a tough one, isn't it? When someone cusses you right out, like when you're driving and somebody gives you the finger because you weren't quite awake and you did something wrong, and they go by and they go like this, you go, God bless you. Good day. You want to be free? You want to be free? It's the greatest freedom. Also, you want to make somebody really mad? Do it. You know the only way to beat anger? The only way to beat anger is to bless. That's what some of you husbands need to do. Your wife's going to get so angry at you sometimes. I promise you, there will be times when she's so angry that she's beating on you. You know what you need to do? Bless her. Just get a hold of her, grab her. It's also much safer. If you hug her tight, you can't hit very hard. You know what Christian love is? Holding your wife with her beating on your chest. And just saying, honey, I love you, I love you. You laugh. That's what it takes to live. And vice versa. You want to be really free? There's no freedom at all. I very easily get angry. If somebody bops me in the nose, boom, right back. There's no freedom, and that's total impulse. No freedom at all, just boom. The freedom is to not have to do that. 
Some of you say, oh, that's sissy. Try it. Just try it. It's not sissy at all. It's incredible strength. And you talk about the power getting furious. Someone that's angry with someone that won't get angry back is infuriating. And the person that's not angry is the one who has the power. And that's what Jesus is saying. It says, when we are persecuted, we endure it. We're going to have to have enduring, disciplined feet. It's going to get tough. We should expect it. Then he says this, when we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. The Apostle Paul says when he's slandered, now that's a tough one. Like when somebody curses me, that's not so bad. I think the hardest thing is the last one that the Apostle Paul shares. When somebody slanders me, it's very hard for me to answer kindly. Slanders when somebody lies about you. Slanders when somebody tells something that's untrue, dastardly, something that's terrible. And they tell it all over town about you. Like a real, real terrible thing. When we were building the church, the cross out there used to be a little bit darker. So I heard there was a rumor that went all over, all over town. We were a Satan-worshipping church. We were the church with a black cross. Now that's slander. Now how do you feel about that? When I tell you that, you go, oh, let's get them. Answer kindly. Answer in love. And you'll be in control. I want to share something with you. Christianity is not about weakness. That's been a very foolish, false argument. Jesus Christ did not look like the painting with the long, beautiful hair. It looks like he just went to the beauty parlor and he walked around kind of like floating on rose petals. Jesus Christ was a carpenter. Jesus Christ did not hang on a cross because he was weak. You need to realize that. In fact, Jesus Christ hung on the cross because he is a supreme example of power under control. Do you realize that Jesus Christ didn't have to do anything to destroy the whole universe? You talk about a nuclear explosion. Jesus Christ needed to do nothing. He needed to just stop what he was doing as God and the whole universe go poof. And you talk about a black hole. The whole thing would have been a black hole. Jesus didn't hang up there because, oh no, I can't do anything else. It was a totally free choice. And that's the pathway he's called us. One day you're going to rule. One day you're going to reign. One day you're going to enjoy all things. One day you're going to be the kings, ruling and reigning with the king of kings. Because of it, don't turn this kingdom into heaven now. It's a lousy kingdom. It's a lousy heaven. Live for the kingdom. The only way to really enjoy this life and to use it to the full is not to hang on to it. But live for that kingdom that's coming. Paul closes this chapter by saying, you don't have a lot of fathers. You don't have a lot of daddies. But Paul is saying, I was the one that taught you the gospel. I'm sending Timothy to you because he will remind you of this way of life, this pathway of the cross that I teach in all the churches everywhere. And a church family that will follow the example of Paul and none of the high-minded Corinthian false teachers will be a church family that's willing to suffer for Christ, that's willing to walk the pathway of the cross. They will become a very humble group of people 
who don't tear one another apart. And their light, like the light of the Apostle Paul, will shine like the stars forever and ever. How many of you can name the name of one of the super apostles who taught in Corinth? Name me one of the Apostle Paul's enemies. You say, well, I'm not a good enough Bible scholar to pick that one out. I'm not either. I'm not either. So whose work prevailed? See, that's what I want you to believe. I want every one of you, from the smallest child to the oldest adults, I want your life to count. I want it to have lasting, enduring significance. I don't want you to live this life, burn it out as a candle, have the light go out, and there's nothing left. If you're willing to walk the pathway of the cross, I promise you, that even in the midst of some of the most difficult suffering, you will have the light of life. And you'll come to know what every believer that's ever suffered for the cause of righteousness. You'll have that tremendous abiding peace of Christ which passeth all understanding.